This is an episode that we have been talking about wanting to do for a while, but have for some reason or the other put off. I think it's because it has just perplexed us. So, Mark, I'm hoping you can help set the stage for why this one particular Pakistani bond is so weird and unusual. And we have talked over the course of our podcasts about many unusual bonds, but I'm wondering whether this takes the cake. Now, before I give it over to you, I think it's helpful to provide a little background, particularly for students and our students, which is that Pakistan has been in and out of debt crises on numerous occasions. And usually the official sector, partly because of Pakistan's importance geopolitically, has provided them with funding or there have been special sources of funding from the Middle East or diaspora investors have provided emergency foreign currency resources. But this time, through no fault of its own, Pakistan has been really hit bad. It was already stumbling thanks to political drama and thanks to COVID. But the recent floods, I mean, it's just, uh, it's just unbelievable how much damage has been done to the people of this country. And hard to imagine why they wouldn't think that this is the time to ask for a restructuring. I mean, investors should understand their needs. I mean, 30, 30% or so of the country was affected by the floods. It's just devastated them. They need debt relief. They deserve debt relief. And that means a restructuring should be done. And some of the Pakistani leaders have said so, but I can't actually understand what they are saying. Sometimes they criticize the rating agencies. Uh, sometimes they say they have more than enough funding from official from the official sector. Sometimes they say they need a debt restructuring. Maybe this is just the nature of things. But I am hoping we talk about one particular bond today that is weird, the 2024 bond. So Mark, can you tell us What's weird about it? Well, there, I think, are a few things that are weird, and maybe we can talk about all of them. But I know that you and I had been looking at the typical place that you start when you want to figure out what a restructuring of a particular bond would look like, which is the modification provision. And, you know, we... We wouldn't just look at that provision, but that's uh, that's always a good place to get the lay of the land. And this bond in particular had some 
some strange things, things that I don't recall having seen before. Uh, and I thought maybe they would be worth talking about. So there are three things in particular, me too, that maybe uh, maybe we can go go over. And, and the first one just has to do with the voting threshold for modifying the bonds. And then that threshold seems quite high to me. So I'll, I'll say something about that in just a second and ask, ask if you've seen something like this before. But then there are really odd turns of phrase in describing who gets to vote and how votes are counted. So that's the second thing, the second oddity I, I thought maybe we could talk about. Uh, and then a, um, a weird provision that seems to give the government a lot of power to modify the contracts on its own. So um, maybe we can just go in that order and, and start with the, the voting threshold itself, which is as I can, as I read this, it's 90%. The, the government needs to go to the holders of this bond and it needs to get the approval of 90% of them in order to do a restructuring. And, you know, these are this is a billion, it's a billion dollar bond. It's not a tiny little issuance, but still that's a really, really high percent to have to persuade. Have you seen something like that before me too? No, never. I mean, it's theoretically possible that one could have a CAC of a 90%. Uh, but so if, if we go back to the, the heyday of the CAC, which is, say, 2003, 2004, when whether or not to include CACs was being hotly debated, I remember there was this battle between those who thought that the market would only accept a high threshold, which was 85% or 80%. I'm pretty sure it was 85%. And some issuers like Brazil tried the 80%, 85%. And other issuers, such as Mexico, tried the 75%. And once it was determined, the market wasn't really penalizing Mexico for having had a lower vote than Brazil's 85%. I mean, whether or not this is econometrically correct, uh, we don't know. But the important people, the investors and the issuers didn't perceive any meaningful difference. And so everybody moved to 75%. Now, this was 2003. Can I, can I just, before you go on, can I just ask what the logic was? So was it for, for countries like Brazil that picked a higher voting threshold, was it sort of fear and uncertainty about investor reaction or was it branding? Like we're the people who are giving you, yes, we're adopting a CAC and so you no longer have the, the right to individually Decline to participate in a restructuring, but our our CAC is so weak as to be almost useless. That that's how confident we are. Was it was it a branding exercise like that, or or something else? You know, I don't know. I mean, we've you know we've 
studied CACs in so much detail. Uh, but that's a great question. I just don't know. I mean, what I've heard from the people who worked on these deals, and th this is my memory is fuzzy, is that there was just uncertainty about what investors would accept since investors had been used to unanimity provisions, at least in the New York market. And there was one set of people who said, hey, look, I mean, in the UK market, 75% seems to work just fine. And there were others who said, ah, New York is different. We're used to unanimity. Let's start with 85%. But, but I also do wonder whether there was some competition. And maybe this gets to your branding question over between the 85% uh, advocates and the 75% as to who was going to set the market standard. And maybe Brazil and Mexico were competing a little bit about who, who the market would follow. But I, I never heard of this 90%. I mean, what the hell? Like, who, who the hell? I mean, what were the, what was Pakistan thinking? It, it, is this is just, I mean, did they get any kind of market benefit for putting in 90%? And this, this bond, if I remember correctly, is issued in 2019. Is that right, Mark? 2019? I think the, I think, no, it was issued before then. I think, so the prospectus that I have is for a bond that matures in 2019, as well oh, as okay, one in okay. 2024. It's issued in 2014. Okay, 2014. That's still pretty You're late. Right. This is well, well into the CAC era. Um, a decade into, into the, the CAC the, era, right? Yeah, even a into decade. the aggregated CAC era. Yeah, 2014 is when aggregated CACs and Pakistan is still using a 90% vote when it's been already a decade since people moved to the 75%. Because even Brazil moves away from 85% within a year or something. They move to 75%. Once they see they we can do 75%, they move to 75%. And by 2014... Argentina has already started using aggregated CACs and Uruguay has put in place aggregated CACs. And so these people have put in 90%, which is basically like a unanimity provision. If I were a holdout creditor, this, this is what I would buy. I would buy this 2024 bond. Well, maybe that's a... That's a useful prompt for the second of our weirdnesses about this bond, because it also has to do with the provisions for modifying it. And, you know, so me too, the, the 90% threshold, as far as I can tell, is um, it goes back quite a ways. So I was looking at a bond that matured back in 2017, and it seemed to have a similar voting threshold of 90%, although the documents are written a little strangely. they um, I don't have the fiscal agency agreement. Um, I don't know if you do, but it, I think a lot of the definitions are sort of offloaded into the fiscal agency agreement and are not always reprinted in any kind of useful detail in the, in the prospectus. But the with that caveat, so Mark, can I just there's uh, something interrupt for one thing that this might be helpful to us. So this is an 
English law bond. And my impression of the market practice in English law bonds as contrasted with the New York law bonds, and again, this is just market practice, is that in the English law bonds, they reproduce the key provisions exactly. And they usually, whereas in the New York law bonds, they say this, this sort of is the, the gist of the provisions. And I, I could be wrong, but I, I think this one says that it is reproducing the provisions. And also, it, when they say fit agency agreement, I think they use... They don't use fiscal agencies, although yeah, maybe say, that's what it, they're doing. They do say agency agreement, and I don't that they they, um, they may or may not be quoting the the provisions, but there are a number of places where they simply refer to provisions that are in the agency agreement, but that are not reprinted. So, for instance, they talk about how the agency agreement has provisions for convening meetings of the note holders, and those provisions are not reprinted in the, the prospectus itself. Got so it. that gives me some pause about this second, um, uh, the second thing I was going to flag, but um, just sort of starting with the caveat that there might be useful and important stuff in the agency agreement. But, you know, we, so 90% is this shockingly high threshold uh, in order to, to get a restructuring passed. But then, so this is really strange and I'm not sure which way it cuts, but in that, that 2024 bond prospectus, the only voting threshold really that is, um, uh, that is clearly staked out is the threshold for an extraordinary resolution. And it refers to that as a resolution duly passed by not less than 90% of the votes cast. And that's, I've never seen that formulation before. You know, normally it talks about the voting threshold as a percentage of the aggregate principal amount of the outstanding debt, something along those lines. Votes cast, if I'm to take this to mean what it seems to say, that's really, that's quite different, right? That would suggest that your vote counted the same as someone, as another holder, whether or not you had the same size position. And that can't possibly be what it means, can it? I, I, I think it's exactly what it means. So in preparing for our podcast, I asked my students, without telling them what I thought, what the meaning of votes cast was. And I showed them this provision and I had them individually determine and then write down their determinations as to what it meant. And every single one of the law students, all of whom at this stage of the term are quite familiar with the sovereign debt world, said that if you say votes cast, then a holder who has a $500 million holding and a holder who has a $1,000 holding are both casting one vote, votes cast. 
And they backed it up by pointing out when the issuer wants to say 90% in aggregate principal amount, they say it. And they literally, in the same provision where extraordinary resolution is defined, like four lines above, it says 90% in aggregate principal amount. So I think, I mean, this this is just, I mean, the 90% is extraordinary for the extraordinary resolution. If I were a holdout creditor, I would love that. But I think, and tell me if you uh, disagree, if I were a potential holdout creditor, I were just any creditor who wants a bond that is going to be protected from the restructuring. If you have a provision like that says votes cast, it means that you have no clue how the voting is going to go because you don't know who's going to show up and what their holdings are going to be. That means in turn that there is huge uncertainty about whether or not you're going to be able to do the restructuring. And if I were the issuer or I were the advisors to the issuer, this is a bond I would not want to touch. I'd want to just have a quiet negotiation with these bondholders and say, you know, just going to pay you off and please go away. Although it's strange, right? Because, you know, you're 40% stake, which would ordinarily entitle you to completely dominate the voting, at least insofar as it matters, you would be able to block the restructuring of uh, almost any bond, or maybe you got 50% and you really could block the restructuring of any bond. I don't know if you only have one (laughs) vote and the all of the other holders with their piddly, you know, two thirds of one percent, they also have one vote. Maybe this is easy to restructure. I, I, I don't I don't know which way which way it cuts. I, so I see I see your point completely. So if you are a big bear of a holdout and you've accumulated the blocking position in this bond just to ten percent, you might not be able to use your 10% because what you need are the votes and your 10% is just a vote. So you have to disperse your votes among a bunch of holders. But what it does do is create massive uncertainty. And we know that restructurers don't like uncertainty as to what is going to happen. They want to be able to, before they go into the restructuring, they want to be able to know how many votes they have and whether the damn thing is going to work. And with this kind of a provision, how the hell do you know? You don't know. Yeah, I don't know how you know. So can maybe then we can talk about whether some of this weird drafting, and, and let's let's call the votes cast thing a goof. Let's say maybe the- Does it have to be? I mean, it's gotta be a goof, right? Like three sentences above, they say 90% in aggregate principal amount, which is how every financial instrument sets the voting. Like I've never seen a financial instrument that says like one person, one vote. It's one instrument, one vote, like not- 
it's they gotta have meant 90% in aggregate principal amount. And this must have been a goof. But you know, maybe, maybe somebody will listen and say, no, this was this was some brilliant strategy where we actually wanted dramatic uncertainty in how just this bond, because have you found any other bonds that have this? Strange. No, and and this is why I think it's a goof. Even that 2017 one that I was I was referencing earlier, which also has the 90% voting threshold. This is the one that matures in 2017. So I assume it was issued in 2007, but I, I should go back and check that. But anyway, it does not have a definition of extraordinary resolution at all, much less one that limits it to votes cast. So I don't I don't understand how this provision would have gotten in to the prospectus for the 2024 bond, but but I'm assuming it's just uh, it can't really mean what it says. So so me too. Something that you had I looked at because you have often asked me questions about these provisions, having read them with a more careful eye than I often do. I looked at the you the unilateral modification provision, the one that lets the, and here it it talks about the fiscal agent, how the fiscal agent can agree without seeking the consent of the note holders at all to um, a modification of the bond. And then the language that I think was especially interesting to me is in any other manner, which is in the sole opinion of the issuer, not materially prejudicial to the interests of the note holders. So you have this, assuming you can get the fiscal agent to go along, there's this unilateral modification power that covers anything that's in the sole opinion of the issuer, not materially prejudicial to bondholders. And so to me, that language is, first of all, broad enough, it could have a whole lot of consequences, but certainly that's broad enough that you could correct this votes cast thing if you, if it was really supposed to be, let's say, ninety percent of the outstanding aggregate principal amount. It, it, is that how you read this? So this provision, I think it's worth looking at it slowly and carefully. So it says the fiscal agent may agree without the consent of the note holders to a wide array of things, which include correcting problems with the document. So without the consent of the note holders is pretty powerful. And then it says it can agree to things that in, quote, the sole opinion of the issuer are not materially prejudicial to the interests of the note holders. So note holders is plural. Plural, yep. Now, on the one hand, if it says sole opinion of the issuer, that's pretty powerful language. It, it seems to say the issuer gets to decide unilaterally as to whether or not this is something in the interest of the note holders. And note holders being plural seems to be note holders as a group. I think that-, that the issuer can do this unilaterally, right? 
I think so. And you're highlighting actually the parts of the language that I, I had not, but the, there's this initial provision that allows for, again, I'm just going to call it unilateral modification, even though the I think the fiscal agent needs to agree. But this first provision allows for unilateral modifications to cure ambiguities or to cure, correct, or supplement any manifest or proven error or any other defective provision. That language would seem to let the government fix the goof if this votes cast language is, um, is indeed a mistake. But that second provision, which you're highlighting, is even broader. It allows the government to make basically any change that it believes is not materially prejudicial to the note holders collectively. And I know that, first of all, these modification provisions are pretty common. You see them in, all, in, in many bonds. But you also often see this, this part of the provision framed so that it is the interests of any note holder that, is, uh, that determines whether the, the government can unilaterally modify. So if it's prejudicial to the interest of any note holder, then the, the provision is not applicable. And you can see how that would be a real restriction on the government's power because somebody's ox is gonna get gored by one of these, um, one of these modifications. But here it looks like if the, the issuer in its sole judgment decides that the collective would not be prejudiced by a change, then it can make the change even if individual bondholders are screaming bloody murder. That, that's, a, that's a really broad power to give the government. It is huge power. And I mean, I guess the question is if they can change the votes cast language, can they just say, all right, it's in the interest of the note holders as a whole that they not have holdouts disturbing this restructuring. And so therefore, we're just going to superimpose on this bond an aggregated collective action clause. So it becomes identical to all the other bonds that have aggregated collective action clauses for Pakistan, which I haven't looked, but I assume it's the majority of outstanding bonds that are out there. Can one do that? Well, I think that's exactly the, the question. And, and that my impression, too, is that the, the significant majority of the bonds that are out there have an aggregated CAC. And, you know, in, it's tempting to, you don't have to, to be too cynical to think that the government might want to do something like this. I mean, it's kind of um, uh, inconvenient, if nothing else, to have this one bond that is not only not going to be aggregated, but that is so strange in its um, in its modification provisions. But you know, don't it, doesn't it just smell funny? Me too. Like I. We're reading the language and it's easy to read the language to come up with a kind of textual argument that the government has the power to do this as long as, you know, it can come up with a, some kind of credible argument for how it's in the collective interest. But, you know, I have a really hard time imagining a federal judge, for instance, 
reading this provision that broadly. Do you think that that they would get away with something like that? Okay, so the, this <laughs> this is this is about textual meaning versus market practice. I think it, or at least to me, it is. And here's why: I think that every sovereign debt lawyer I have ever spoken to about this provision, this modification provision, would say everybody understands it to be only relevant to the most trivial of stuff. This is not about superimposing a, a dramatic change on the document, and nobody intended it to be read in the way that we are suggesting. Now, on the flip side, there are those in New York, and this is, I think, New York contract law, which would say, "We're not going. We're not going to go investigate English law here." Oh yeah, but it's it's even more so about English law, right? Right. I mean, actually, whatever I said is even more true about English law, which is we're not going to go investigate. Uh, you know what? people might have thought 30 years ago, we're going to look at the text of the language. And the text of the language says, sole opinion of the issuer, not materially prejudiced to the interests of the note holders. If you wanted to say any note holder, you could have. If you wanted to say that the issuer has to take into account uh, the views of uh, some investor representative, like a trustee, you could have had a trustee structure. But no, here you just have the fiscal agent, who's the agent for the issuer. It it seems like uh, if you go on the text of the contract without looking at how this has been generally understood, you would interpret it the way we are suggesting. The other interpretation that we also talked about, where you would say, you know, we never really understood it this way, is sort of saying that the votes cast was a goof. And this reading is also the product of goofy language again, like somebody wasn't paying attention in drafting this provision. I mean, I guess the, the, without looking at the underlying intent. It's fairly straightforward to see an argument about how, first of all, the reading that we're, this textualist reading we're suggesting would be kind of absurd uh, in that it would let the government do essentially anything that it wanted uh, without constraint. And also how this reading would kind of render unnecessary and, and irrelevant most of the rest of the document. I mean, if the this one sentence we're focused on lets the government change the voting rules to, uh, to something else just because it happens to decide that that would not prejudice the, the bondholders collectively, what's the point of having all of these extensive uh, voting and modification provisions that are already written in the contract? It just... Um, you know, I, I think there are sort of interpretive rules of thumb that a court could reach to, even if it was just pretending to stick to the text, that would let it read this provision in context 
as a provision that's designed to for housekeeping or ministerial kinds of changes rather than for changes that are that are substantive. But you know, sure would be easier to make that argument if it didn't have language like sole opinion of the issuer in there. My instinct is that you are correct that a court would be very reluctant, even an English court that is a hardcore contractarian court would be very reluctant to ignore what in their bones must be telling them is market understanding. But uh, it, it, this, this, this provision is not written in a way that makes it easy for the court to do that. And I should add that when we had all of that paripasu drama, English lawyers would often say to me, and this just might have been puffery, they would often say, well, an English court would never make the mistake that the New York court did because our English judges are always experienced in actual practice and they would have understood that the market did not understand this provision this way. But I, I've always been puzzled. Like, how do you actually figure that out without having people provide evidence? Like, there, there's, you, you can't just look up at the ceiling and figure out what these provisions mean. And there's no, I don't think Philip Wood or Lee Bukite has discussed this provision because it's so damn obscure. We're probably the first people to read the damn provision. Like, this doesn't make it into, Lee's book or Philip's book, this is supposed to be truly ministerial, which means they can look it up and figure out what it means. Well, there will be there will be lots of opportunities for people to read this document if, as I suspect, um, people start to take a bit more seriously the possibility of a debt restructuring for Pakistan, because as um, as you were pointing out at the beginning, it's there has been a string of calamities that um, uh, makes it hard to hard to see how can escape a, a restructuring over the next couple of years. But me too. Maybe um, maybe as we close, we can talk about one other unusual aspect of the Pakistan debt least unusual to me because I know so little about them. And that is the fact that there is at least some sukuk debt uh, in the debt stock as well. And presumably that will need to be restructured too. And I confess, I know very, very little about what a restructuring of sovereign sukuk debt would look like, much less how that would interact with a restructuring of more traditional euro bonds. Uh, is, this, is this as uncertain as, as it seems to me, or do we have some sense of, of what things are going to look like? I, I think it's highly uncertain. I don't think there's ever been a restructuring of a sovereign sukuk. I think that Pakistan has a range of sukuks at least some that have collective action clauses in them, some that don't, but it is not at all clear to me how 
you would combine a restructuring of a sukkah with an aggregated collective action clause, for example, with a restructuring of the other bonds, in part because the sukkah, it's like an equity interest and the others are a debt interest and the sukkah is not supposed to have interest because then it would not be Sharia compliant. And then there is this additional layer of complexity where I think the sukkah can stop becoming Sharia compliant if some religious committee uh, that is appointed decides that it's not Sharia compliant and then the, the whole thing goes poof. So I, I just, you know, that maybe the lawyers have figured it out, uh, but maybe they're just kind of saying their prayers that they'll be able to restructure it. I got interested in this Sukkot question because after one of our episodes, I think it was on the Sri Lanka Guaranteed Bond, we got some emails from investors who were back then looking at Pakistan, asking whether the sukuk was a form of a guaranteed instrument and whether it was just like that Sri Lankan airline guaranteed bond, more protected in a restructuring than the other bonds. And, you know, I can't make head or tail of the sukuks, but they are different. And it seems like they would be hard harder to restructure than other bonds. And particularly if the Sukuk does not have the collective action clauses and some mechanism to get the proper religious blessing for the uniformly applicable part of the collective action clause. So I, I, I don't know, how are you going to say that the Sukuk interest is the same as the bond interests when the sukuks are not supposed to have, they're not supposed to be a traditional borrowing. But I, I, I'm just revealing my utter uh, confusion. And maybe uh, we're just putting this out there for some of our experts to write in and tell us that they're going to come and be guests on our podcast and tell us about how the sukuk sovereigns can be restructuring because these sukuk sovereigns have become much more popular lately. There are lots of them, and then we can you know, hopefully get someone to talk to us about green sukuks too, because <laughs> I find those every bit as confusing and more so than I find um, than I find the ordinary sukuk. So um, maybe we should let that be our conclusion. Me too, since I have nothing insightful or thoughtful to add. I am completely at a loss. I'm assuming the Sukuks are just going to be carved out and treated separately. Certainly that is a, a possibility that that is allowed under the aggregated CACs in the, the more traditional Euro bonds. What that restructuring of a Sukuk would look like though, that sounds like a nice topic for a later episode. It is indeed. It is indeed. But I, I, I think that 2024 bond is is one of the more messed up bonds because of the voting threshold, because of that 90% of votes cast, because of the bizarre modification provision. It's like a gift that keeps on giving. Maybe, 
I suspect if we looked at more of the provisions, we would find just more bombs in there. If I were the restructurers, I, I, I would be praying that this one matures before I have to, to deal with this Pakistani restructuring. But then, of course, that same restructure is going to have to deal with the Sukuk. So shall we close? Sounds good to me. Me too. We will close no more enlightened, um, but slightly more entertained than we started. And you know, that's, that's not nothing. <laughs>